to the Urban Planners Podcast, hosted by Gigi the Planner. This podcast is about all things urban planning related and otherwise. In this setting, we'll discuss the ins and outs of the planning field. We'll even delve into some very controversial topics involving the role planners have to take in their everyday lives and jobs. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode. This This is Gigi the Planner. Welcome everyone to episode 38 of the Urban Planners Podcast. In today's episode, I interview John Sanchez from New York City, who is running for city council for the 15th district. We talk about the future urban planning and how he has been involved in the planning field. Hope you all enjoy. Welcome, John, to the Urban Planners Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this and it's good to have Black folks talking about urban planning. Most definitely. So you're a non-traditional interviewee. I usually have planners. So please share your interest in the planning field and how you find out about what planning is. Yeah, well, I mean, quick background. Um, Raised in the Bronx and my first job ever, I was a real estate agent. So I was always fascinated about how the places where I showed apartments, which is downtown, East and West Village, why did that look different from my neighborhood in the Bronx? Why did they have more open space? Why was it more pedestrian friendly? Why did they have more parks and open space? And then later on, I got involved in government and now I'm the district manager of a community board in the Bronx. So I'm an unofficial planner because we deal with a lot of the same issues. We're looking at land use applications. Developers are coming to our community board asking about plans for the neighborhood. I work with the city agencies when they're talking about park redesigns or street redesigns. So I kind of just chanced into being in a planning field through my job. Cool. So what is your degree? Yeah, so I went to uh, NYU Stern. So my degree is actually in business, but my favorite courses were all in government. And I've always been interested in city government because city government, you can really have an impact on what people see on their day-to-day lifestyle, which I think is what also draws me to planning. You can change the streetscape. You can change how people interact with their lived environment. And it's the most fascinating level of government to me. Most definitely. So keying in on that city government. So you're running as a candidate for the New York City Council 15th District. What drove you to public service? Yes, well, I grew up in the Bronx in a poor area, but I always wanted to make the Bronx a neighborhood where people want to remain in, raise their families, et cetera, uh, instead of feel like they have to leave the neighborhood to make it. And what draw me to public service is just helping my neighborhood, making a difference and having an impact. It's really that simple. It's not about being in the press, being in the media. It's about how many lives have you changed and how many people have you helped through their journey. One of the things I'm most proud of is at the community board, we have a year-round paid internship program. And a lot of my interns have gone on to planning school or worked for the city council or the state assembly, all from starting at the local level of government And now they're moving on and on, which is great. Awesome. So as a lifelong Bronx resident, what drives you um, to advocating for urban planning needs of Black and Brown communities? Most of the people that come to my office to discuss these plans, whether they be housing, parks, et cetera, they don't look like us. There was only one city planning employee that was Black that I ever interacted with. Um, And she left a few years later, and I'm sure... The lack of diversity in the department was something to do with it. Too often we have people that don't know our experiences telling us how our environment should look. 
And I think that's wrong because we're innovative people. We have ideas. And one thing that I'm most proud of is that when city planning and the parks department talked about redesigning two parks in our neighborhood, they actually listened to the community residents. Just simple things like, what, that park? No one uses the handball court. So there's no reason to keep the handball court. Make it an all-purpose field. Having that experience of being on the ground rather than relying on theories that you read in textbooks is very important. I think it's important for the planning profession to understand that uh, you need to listen to the people in the neighborhood. I most definitely agree with you on that as it relates to not having the lack of representation with the black and brown communities in the, the planning departments in different cities. That's sort of what drove me to doing what I'm doing now today with my organization is trying to help ensure that we have those black planners helping plan the black communities. And you know, a lot of times when people of other races come into communities that are of a different race, a lot of the residents don't feel safe. They don't feel as if they could really trust them. They feel like they may be trying to take over their community. So I think it's really important for us to have the proper representation for any race in the communities as it relates to planning specifically. And I also think it's important to get that exposure. I didn't know urban planning was a career when I was in high school. I didn't even know that my job that I'm doing now as district manager was available until my second, third year of college. And I think it's important to let young people, black and brown folks to know, you can help design cities. You can design parks. You can design what your neighborhood looks like. You can have a say in that. And I wish I would have known about this earlier in high school. Maybe I would have pursued an urban planning degree. But I think to make up for that, my internship program is kind of like creating the next pipeline of talent for people to go into uh, planning school. That's awesome. I think that's really great. Yeah, most people that I've come across, planners specifically, very few people actually don't find planning until they've gotten to like their bachelor's degree. While they're an undergrad, they may take a class that opened them up to planning or they find out about planning after they got their bachelor's degree. But yeah, I do think it's important to try to help gear younger kids into the planning field. 100%. And there's so many jobs available. There's cities that are doing innovative things, whether it be in San Francisco, Austin, Texas, even in New York City. If you like walking around your neighborhood and there's things that you want to change, urban planning might be a career for you. Most definitely. So I understand that New York City has implemented open streets created to provide additional public space due to COVID-19. How has that been faring in the community? It's been great. It's cold now, but it really started with the pandemic. So a few streets were closed off. So play streets were allowed. But I think the most significant part of it was open streets for restaurants. So Arthur Avenue is in my community board and it's near where I live. And a year ago, if you would have told me that the businesses would have been okay with removing parking on weekends and allowing the streets to be open, I would have said, never. But the businesses realize that it's good for business. People like walking around their neighborhood without the threat of being hit by a car. And it's good for business. And I think people, it rechanged their mindset. So now the business owners are saying, even post-pandemic, we want to do this every summer now. It, unfortunately, a pandemic had to waken up a people's imagination, but they see it. They see the effectiveness of it. And I'm hoping that this continues throughout New York City, even post-pandemic. That's awesome. And that sort of reminds me a little bit of how Times Square came to be similarly. And now 
it's a, a bustling area and people thought that you, you can never remove the cars from this area, but yeah. look where it is today. Yeah, Jeanette Sadiq Khan, she was a trailblazer. She writes about this as street fight. They just took a chance. They put lawn furniture on the plaza. They said, let's see. And then when they said, oh, the, the pilot program's over, people said, no, we don't want the cars back. We like walking around Times Square. And I think that's what government needs to do. You have to take chances and show people a different way of living. I, I love traveling to Europe because it is so pedestrian friendly. And I always think, yeah, we're in the United States and each city has its own culture. But I think if you're serious about climate change, you want to make it easier for pedestrians and people to ride their bikes rather than making it so easy to drive. We can't have so many cars in our country if you're serious about climate change. I most definitely agree with that. So what are some of the lessons that can be learned from the open streets concept? Is there anything that you would do differently with that? So I think a lot of this is hindsight's 2020. Now we realize that we probably should not have closed the playgrounds and the parks. Outdoor transmission is very low um, because originally they opened the streets because they closed all the playgrounds and the basketball courts. Um, but now we're finding that it's okay to be outside with the virus. I think it was a good first step for the city. First time that ever the city ever did it. I think the lesson we can take from it is that when it comes to redesigning the street, we can't have delays for months and years from people that are car owners and don't want to lose their parking spot. Sometimes we just need to be creative and take a chance. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But to let things delay and delay after all these meetings is a disservice to people in the city. And even business owners that are non-restaurants, now they want open streets as well too. So I think we just have to be more creative and innovative. Government shouldn't be a place where people think things are stuck and there's also so much red tape. They're hoping that this new generation of planners and people in government realize we need to make things different. I most definitely agree with that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the older generation being stuck in their ways. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the people in power are of the older generation and we don't have a lot of younger people coming into these roles. So that really does make a big difference as it relates to some of these innovative things that's coming in the community. Yeah. What's the city that you grew up in? I grew up in West Park, a small city in South Florida. Got it. So like in your neighborhood, was there a lot of open streets with the pandemic or how, how did they do that? No, my, my neighborhood is basically predominantly residential. So not a whole lot of commercial. So no. And like you mentioned, they closed our parks. There's one park that's open, but another park is closed. People can't get in there. I'm sure people still got in there some type of way, but yeah. <laughs> it's it actually kind of funny that the, the gate was broken for years and years. And when the pandemic happened, they finally fixed the gate because they didn't want people to get in the park, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Your neighborhood uh, in Florida do you mind that it's not as walkable as a place in New York City? South Florida is very car-centric. Everything's so spread out. Yeah. So I don't even really know how that could be fixed down here. Mm. I wish it could be more walkable, but I don't see how that's even a possibility. But it just been a, such a large metropolitan area with the three major counties down here. The, the best thing we can do is try to find a better mass transit system, train system, rail system. The bus systems aren't really all that great. It's kind of hard to really get people out of their cars because just how spread out everything is. 
and as how government designed it, they incentivize the interstate highway system instead of an interstate rail system, which we should have had. Most definitely. I mean, I've never driven a car in my life. So thinking about living in a place like Florida, I, I don't know how I function. I lived in PG County, Maryland for a year and the bus didn't run on Sundays and I had to walk a mile to the supermarket. So instead what I did was I took the train down to DC and then came back to Maryland. That's how I got around. And just thinking like there's a lot of folks that maybe they can't afford a car or whatever the situation may be. I don't know what I would do in a, in a car centric city. Yeah, and that's interesting for you to say that you've, you've never driven a car. And I've heard other people from New York and around the area say that. And like down here, that's like not really an option. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody drives. Yeah, Everybody drives down here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when we're thinking about climate change, like I've seen a lot of stuff about the Green New Deal, and that's the big wave right now. When we're talking about urban planning, we need to redesign our transit system in the country if we're really serious about climate change. It's one of the leading causes of the emissions. You see the wildfires going on in California. Uh, you see Atlanta shut down when there's a snowstorm. We need to finally have public transit. I'm not saying get rid of cars, but let's make it easier so not everyone has to get a car. I totally agree with you on that, but I think there's no hope for South Florida, basically. <laughs> There's no hope at this point. So and continuing the conversation about the urban design of New York City, how have the deck parks been able to help address climate change and air quality for the residents and tourists? Yeah, so the deck park is an idea. And we, what we want to do is we want to put some decks over the Cross Bronx Expressway. So the Cross Bronx Expressway is rated the worst highway in America, worst traffic ever. And it was built in the 70s and because of Robert Moses, they literally cut through the center of the Bronx, displaced thousands of people, et cetera. And then a few years later, they got rid of a train station line, the Third Avenue elevated. So you can displace people and then you get re replace it with appropriate transit. So the idea is, since this is already a big expressway, it'll probably be billions of dollars to tear down the expressway, which would be the ultimate goal. The idea is similar to what they did in, in Dallas, Texas, deck over a portion of the Cross Bronx so that the fumes and the exhaust doesn't go out into the neighborhood because the Cross Bronx is linked to some of the highest asthma rates in the country. And it looks like the Cross Bronx, your proximity to living in the Cross Bronx directly correlates with people's transmission of getting. So wow, this that is a public, really it's a public health crisis. And if we want to talk about big, bold ideas with the Green New Deal, let's get people to work, deck over the highway, make our air cleaner, and make sure that the next virus doesn't hurt Black and brown folks disproportionately. I agree with you on that. So have they started that process yet, or are they moving towards that's why, that? That's why I'm running, because it's going to require federal funding, because it's a highway. It's going to require some state funding, some funding, and city funding. This is a massive you know, public works project, but with our bad economy, we want to get people back to work. What better way to get people back to work, decking over highway, but also improving the health of Bronx residents. Awesome. I really like that idea. I had never really heard of a deck park before, so I was researching mm -hmm. it the other day. I'm like, this is a really unique concept. I don't really hear it about it much in many cities, actually. 
Yeah, and I think ideally Dallas, Texas is like the, the best example. They call it Clyde Warren Park. So there's a way you can do it, but I think it's just important. It can be done. You just have to be creative and think outside of the box. I think we need it. And I think another thing is that the example in Dallas, Texas, it's a public-private partnership. So they got some private funding as well. I think this is a great opportunity to get the public and private sector together to fund this because clean air impacts everyone, whether you live in the neighborhood or work in the neighborhood or drive through the neighborhood. So it's in the interest of both the public and private sector to make sure we have clean air. I most definitely agree with that. So a few months ago, I interviewed the NYC Parks Commissioner, Metro Silver, who was also a planner. planner. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He's great. At the start of the pandemic. And he spoke briefly about some of the things that they were doing in the parks due to COVID. Are there any particular changes to how the op- parks operate that you believe are working great for the park goers and others? I would say there was some frustration in the beginning of the pandemic when they removed some of the exercise equipment, pull-up bars, dip bars, push-up bars, because people were really scared. They thought, we can't have anyone near any park gathering together. I'm glad we have more information now and we can have exercise equipment. But I'd say Parks is doing a great job. Another thing to notice is that they got their budget cut by about $100 million in this most recent budget, which is unfortunate. Um, So they couldn't do a lot of the programming that they usually do. But the pandemic showed that people love the parks. Parks were heavily used this summer. In fact, we had to do a bunch of cleanups because they were so heavily used. But I think post-pandemic, I think the parks department has an opportunity to do a lot more programming. There's a great need for it. And people want to be outside with each other. They love open space. People don't like to be cooped up in their apartment to begin with. So I, I see an opportunity for more 5Ks in small parks, outdoor concerts, just more events for people to enjoy themselves, even movie screenings, like movies in the parks. Our parks are so important to the city. Whenever people think about New York, they think about Central Park, right? So I think it's important that the next city council make sure that we keep their funding in place because they're so important and they're so vital to the city. Most definitely. And yes, I I was one of those people that started going to the park a lot more as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like you said, just to get out the house almost every day, I just walk outside to my front door and just stand outside for a few minutes so I can get <laughs> yeah. some fresh air. But yeah, I, I did notice a lot more people going to the parks, a lot more people exercising. So I think it's great. There's good and bad about this pandemic. And I think that's like one of the good things that people have been you know, getting more active and going to the parks and getting out and exercising. Yeah, and it shows people that government can do good things. A lot of these parks are designed by government, have government workers. So we should be putting more funding into our parks. I think a lot of people didn't realize what they were missing until their parks were the only place they could go. Then they realized, oh, wow, we have such of these great parts of our city, like a little oasis in our city. So we need to protect them. I most definitely agree with that. So as we enter an era of a new normal, what are some of the things that you think should be considered in the urban planning field? That's a big one. So I'll talk about New York City because each city is a little bit different. I think right now in New York City, we need to change our outdated land use rules. Right now, there are parts of New York City, like Riverdale, Soho, and Staten Island, that are zoned only for single family homes. We have a housing crisis in New York City, but there's certain pockets that are kind of like gated communities where we can't build affordable housing 
because of these outdated rules. And these outdated rules, prize, are linked to a lot of the redlining maps. The areas that, that are green and blue are areas that are only zoned for single family homes. So I think that's one thing New York needs to do. But also, we just need to build more. There seems to be an anti-development wing in New York City politics. But if we want New York City to remain the biggest city in the country, we shouldn't be limiting who can live here. I think anyone from around the world or the country that wants to live in New York should have housing options to do so. And right now, New York City just isn't building enough to keep up with job growth. And that's what I'm concerned about. I don't want people to leave New York City because the rents are too unaffordable. So then they leave to upstate or they go down to Florida or Atlanta. I want them to stay here. <laughs> but the only way they're gonna stay here is if we build enough housing, but also to a level where the rents are reasonable. Yeah, we have issues down here with you know rents being unreasonable as well. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they probably won't be necessarily leaving New York to come to Florida for a cheaper rate because it's a little outrageous here. But yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I think affordable housing is one of the major crises here in America, especially in the large metropolitan areas where we have such a large population. But however, most people can afford you know, the housing. So it's really a detriment to minorities not to be able to you know, live decently because of the higher rates. Yeah, like in New York City, in the last 10 years, 10 neighborhoods in the city accounted for nearly half of the new housing. So there's 59 community boards, 10 community boards had half of the housing. Why are the other 49 community boards not building as much? If every neighborhood did their fair share of housing, we have a lot smaller of an issue in New York City. So in New York City, we have 51 different council members. Each council member is kind of like a mini mayor. So they kind of determine the land use policy. We really need a citywide and regional plan for, okay, what's our goal for housing for the region and the city, not a specific neighborhood? Because it doesn't work if 10 neighborhoods are building all the housing and the other 49 neighborhoods aren't. So I'm taken aback by the fact that you said there's 51 council members. Yes, 51 <laughs> council members. <laughs> Big city. Oh my gosh, that is, that's really crazy. And I can't even really imagine how meetings go. Um, well, my city, like I said, is really, really small. So they have like five. It's like five. And that's like a, that's like a common, like most cities, even like cities that are larger than mine have like five. So 51 is like outrageous in my personal opinion. Yeah, there's been talk about maybe we should have at-large council members. So we don't have 51 different land use policies. Maybe you reduce that number to 26 or you know, 14, 15. So people are thinking more regionally rather than my specific district and that's it. Let's think about the bigger picture of the whole city. Yeah, I agree with that. Even city of Miami, I think they have like five too. But one thing, like in my city, we have it where it's like an at-large board. So nobody has a district. And when you have these council members with these districts, like they just care about their district. They don't care about all the other other ones. It's like their residents and their businesses, everything's theirs because that's their district instead of like the whole city at large. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, and I think this pandemic shows us that viruses don't know boundaries. What happens in one part of a neighborhood, what happens in one part of the city impacts another part of the city. And I think going forward, 
especially with all the problems we're facing, we need to think broader and think more collaboratively about, yes, you're the representative for this district, but let's work together as a borough and as a city because people are hurting all over. And if your residents are doing good, but my residents aren't doing good, that still impacts the whole city. I totally agree with you on that. So how do their meetings go? Like, do they all 51 meet together at one time in one room? Yeah. So right now everything's on Zoom, so it's a lot easier. But generally, um, they have committee meetings. So each group of council members is on a committee. And then they have their monthly stated meetings in, uh, in City Hall. So that's pretty much how it works. It's a lot easier now because of Zoom. But yeah, they all meet in a room and there's, there's space for the public. It's New York City. We do everything big. So city hall chambers can probably fit 200, 300 people. So it, it's not a full room with the 51 council members. Um, but I think everything's going to be virtual at least for the next year or so. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, like I said, I'm trying to wrap my head around that a little bit because 20 council members is not even heard of. So 51 is like, oh my gosh. Hearings do last long. Like when the committees have hearings, especially back when we were meeting in person, you could have a committee hearing last three, four, five hours because you have all of the public testimony. One good part of the pandemic is now more people can participate in hearings because they don't have to go all the way to city hall at a time that's inconvenient. They can submit their testimony mm -hmm. online. They can hop in on a Zoom. So it's actually you know, democratized public engagement in a way. Mm -hmm. More people can participate in these public hearings. That's interesting that it, the meetings are only three to five hours because that's how the meetings are down here with smaller boards, mm. smaller cities. Yeah. City of Miami, it's like a work day, basically. They start at like 10 a.m. and it's like to the end of the day or however long. And sometimes it goes into 1 a.m. So that's surprising. They must have really good control of the audience and the people well, speaking. Well, yeah, they give them a three I minute. I can imagine. They give them a three minute limit. Same thing here, yeah. but you know, if, if you have 50 people in the line to speak on this one thing, especially like, like I said, with the city of Miami, that's a lot of people. And then we also have community boards. So there's 59 different community boards and community boards have their own set of meetings. And we've been adjusting by doing it via Zoom, but a community board meeting can last two or three hours easily. Interesting. So I'm gonna look more into that. That's really like blowing my mind. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so as we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share with my audience or any advice that you'd like to give to planners on how they can best prepare for the future of the profession and how our cities are being formed as well as how they can best advocate for the needs of the communities? One, I'd say if you care about your neighborhood, if you care about how your neighborhood looks, if you're concerned that you may want to leave your neighborhood and you want to do something about it, Get involved at the local level, go to your planning board meeting, go to your local council member. And if you're a high school student listening to this call, think about urban planning. Read the color of law, read street fight. Those are two good starting guides. Look at the history of what our government has done to incentivize certain types of developments and how certain parts of this country look. And if you wanna change that, urban planning is a great career. I highly encourage everyone to look into it that wants to change their neighborhood. And we need more Black and Latino people in the profession. We need to be at the table when it comes to redesigning our cities. Otherwise, 
people not from our neighborhoods are going to determine what our cities look like in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I most definitely agree with you on that. And especially getting involved like on the board. I'm actually the chair of the board in my city. And actually, I feel like I can make a greater impact on the board than I do in my day-to-day job. Mm-hmm. Just how it's just structured. <laughs> Yeah. And that's like another story for the n- another day. But I do feel like me being on the board, I can have more impact. I can help move development a little bit better. I have a little bit more control of that. I'm the youngest person by far on the board. Oh, so it's, it was a little intimidating growing up in the South, respect to your elders, and then you're like over your elders. <laughs> so weird. Because some of these people probably could be like my grandparents. <laughs> But I, one thing that I realized that I have a planning background, nobody else does. I had been on other boards. So I knew the Robert rules of order. I knew how to conduct mm-hmm. meetings. So I had that upper hand on that. But like I said, it's a little Im- intimidating sitting like in the mayor's seat where the mayor would sit, <laughs> 23, 24, 25. But it's been a great experience. I do really suggest like other mm-hmm. planners try to get involved because I feel like there's not many planners actually on the planning boards for whatever reason. Usually people like outside the planning field or maybe planning adjacent fields that actually get on these boards. Yeah, and young people, we have ideas. We know what we want to see in our city and we don't need to think that, oh, I can only have a say once I turn 40 or 50. No, you can have a say right now. If you're voting, then you should also have a say in how your neighborhood looks. It just starts at voting. Voting is just the first step but we need people to be consistently engaged, whether it's about, hey, we need an extra bus stop, or hey, the bus isn't running on time, let's fix that. Or what, this park is in bad shape, let's redesign it. We need people to get involved in all of these discussions, host the presidential election, get involved in your local neighborhood. I agree with that. And even when I know it's like going to the city council meetings that the people in the audience are predominantly older people, Younger people don't really get involved. I was like the only young person there yeah. <laughs> when I was going to the meetings. And they were thinking that I was trying to run for a commissioner or something. That's, I yeah. guess, because they don't see nobody else. So I'm like, she must have an ulterior motive for being here. <laughs> I was just trying to understand what was going on. It's just, honestly, it's a comedy show for me <laughs> going to these meetings. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's really important, especially like you said and I said, get younger people need to get involved. Because a lot of these older people just want to stay stuck in the past. That's what I hear a lot, especially when they get those people get up to the podium and they speak about certain things that the commission is trying to push forward. They want to keep it how it is. They've been living here. The grandparents been living here. They just want everything to stay like it was. But we need younger people and people that are innovative and forward thinkers to speak up as well, which I'm saying that to myself because I don't speak up about it. But as it relates to trying to help get these new developments and new things coming into the communities? Yeah, growth is an uncomfortable process. People are uncomfortable with with change, but a little bit of pain is a necessary investment for progress. We need progress in our country, in our cities, and I think maybe we can address our, our elders a little differently, but when they were our age, they wanted change too. So this is cyclical. This is always going to be a back and forth, but the history of our country shows that change isn't stopping. Change is coming whether people want it or not. So let's keep moving forward. I agree with you in that. 
All right. So as we close out, please provide your social media platforms so that people can connect with you. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, John Sanchez NY, Twitter, NY, John Sanchez. And my website, John Sanchez for NY.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Bye. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. If you would like to be interviewed in a future episode, please head over to my website at ggtheplanner.com and select the interview tab and you can request to be interviewed by me in a future episode. That's all for today, folks. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Urban Planners Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over and leave a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast so that you won't miss out on an episode. If you would like to buy personalized urban planning gear and other products or are in need of some urban planning career coaching, please head over to ggtheplanner.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at ggtheplanner. Have a great week and we'll see you next episode.